You're listening to Bethany Radio. More content is available on iTunes or online at BethanyBibleLeroy.com. Let's go in our scriptures again. Word of God to the book of Mark 15. I'm going to start in verse 21 again. You notice last week we got halfway through the passage we read. This week we're going to finish it up. But Mark 15, verse 21 is where we'll start. And on our way there, is Weston here with us today. Weston? This is your picture, right, from last week, and Weston drew this, and of course, you, we're going to look at this today, really, so this is by way of introduction. Weston drew, and he's got the inscription up there of Jesus in the middle, King of the Jews, and then the robber on his left and on his right, and that's what we're going to be looking at, those two as well as others that are passing by in our scripture, so thanks, Weston, for Helping us get an idea. This is where we're at. We're at Golgotha, that place of a skull. Jesus has been crucified. And so let's read the account of that again, starting in verse 21, and then we'll go all the way through verse 32 here. Let's listen to God's word. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right, one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. We just pray again for us. Lord, again, as we read your word, we are thankful today for this scripture in front of us. Many of us have it on our phones. We can get it online for free. We can get copies here of Scripture for free. It's in many different translations throughout the world. What a gift, Lord, you have given us, your grace to give us your special revelation by your word here. And I pray that today, as we look into this, we see your word pointing us, Lord, areas where we need to acknowledge you again and our belief in you, areas in our lives where we've not been believing you. So Lord, guide us again to gaze upon the greatness that we just sang about, how great is our God. Lord, I pray we'd come out of here again praising you. How great is our God? How great a God that would humble himself and come to a cross for sinners such as us. You're gracious and worthy of our eternal, lifelong, forever praise. So guide us, Lord, to hear from you in the time we have. By your Spirit, move amongst us, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Last week we did. We looked at the first five verses of this passage before us, Mark's detailed descriptions that we saw, though not an entire encyclopedia describing this event, but but enough to give us some details like who carried the cross, Simon did, and where they go, that place of a skull, whether whether it's the place that actually looked like a skull or other places, it's up for debate. You can look that up. What did Jesus do with that narcotic drink, that wine mixed with myrrh? What did he do? He, no, refused it on his way. What did they do with his clothes? They cast lots and ultimately they crucified Jesus on a cross. And not only was this simply and powerfully an example to all who would follow Jesus and the suffering that disciples would endure and how to endure suffering, we'll look at that today, but it also shows the sacrifice and the the ransom Jesus would pay as an atonement for sinners on the cross, for those who would hear his voice and come to him for salvation and, and receive healing and reconciliation before a holy and righteous God, only through the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ on the cross. And we're here, and in the middle of this passage is this verse 26. And I see this verse as a sort of a hinge of this passage that we're in. Kind of a, it leads up to it, just to remind us who's before us, who's on this cross. Yeah, even the, even the Gentiles put on there the king of the Jews. Uh, did they believe it? We don't know. But it's up there. And I think Mark's even bringing that up to remind us who's crucified, who's at this place of a skull. It's the king of the Jews. And I think it acts as kind of a hinge. This was written in Aramaic. Other uh, uh, gospels tell us that. It's written in Aramaic, written in Latin and Greek. I mean, it's for everybody can read this inscription. But the Jewish leadership did not like this. John in his gospel tells us as they came to Pilate and they said, don't write the king of the Jews. Here's what they wanted written. Right? This man said, I am the king of the Jews. And Pilate answered them, what I have written, I have written. It's like, case closed. This is what's there. And so here, this title, I think, Mark uses in this text to give this context of the crucifixion we've looked at and then the context of these uh, people coming by that will deride and ridicule and insult Jesus. And for those that are taking notes and you need some sort of an outline, we're looking really at three different characters that show up in the study here. We're looking at these guys on Jesus' right and left, these robbers, thieves. We're looking at those that passed by. We'll call them the passerbys. And then lastly, this leadership, the Jewish leadership, these chief priests and scribes. And so we want to just kind of look at all three and and look at them in a bit of detail, a little bit, and see their reactions to this inscription, the king of the Jews. How are they going to interact with this, this one here? We're given a picture in verse 27 of Jesus between these two robbers where it says, and with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right, one on his left. Kind of get a picture of that by what Mark records here. One commentator, you've heard me use him quite a bit. I find him just helpful. His name is James Edwards. But he talks about this entire event and what's going on here as a sort of, uh, he calls it a royal enthronement. 
we wouldn't necessarily see that uh, through here, but maybe you will. If you look at the soldiers that clothed Jesus in that purple robe, talked about the royalty of that, or they put on him the crown, but it wasn't, you know, the, the magnificent crown. It was a crown of thorns and so forth. What he, his point he's making is this is not an enthronement that we would, or, or I think anyone ridiculing Jesus would expect, but this is Jesus being enthroned on his throne as the king, but not where we would typically see this because Jesus' throne here is a cross. It's pretty unbelievable that the God of ages would come as a man and be enthroned where? On a cross. I mean, he's, he's now on the throne. He's at the Father's right hand. But here, he's on a cross. And who is he with? He's with robbers, not exalted people. You might compare uh, the request of James and John to what we see going on in, in chapter 15 in this. We've got these two robbers on his right and his left. Do you remember in Mark 10 told us, when we looked there, and that's where we've come this key verse in Mark 10.45, this Jesus coming to, not to be served, but to serve and to give his life. And before that, you have James and John asking Jesus for something. Do you remember what they, they asked him? They wanted to sit on his right and left hand in his glory. You know, he, And I think Mark here... Here, that was in Mark 10. We come now to 15, and we're in verse 27. Now, it's not James and John, but there's two robbers on either side of him. Jesus, really fulfilling Isaiah 53, 12, says this. The Lord says of his servant, says, Therefore, I will divide him, the servant of the Lord, a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. That's Jesus. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. I wonder, this is not original with me, but just looking at this and how Mark puts this in, did John, maybe he was at the cross, I believe he was there, perhaps James, did they look up at that cross and see these two robbers, one on his right and one on his left, and say, that could have been us up there. We were the ones wanting this position. That could have been us. Maybe more conviction-wise, they look up and say, that should be us. Remember all the disciples had fled away? Um, We don't know. Perhaps they saw that. Well, the two here on Jesus' left and right may have been crucified for robbery, but even they get in on the insults against the one in between them. If you jump to the end of this passage, you see them again, and maybe there's a sort of sandwich that Mark's trying to put in between here. But at the very end, verse 32, if you go to the the last sentence, it says, those who were crucified with him also reviled him. Both of these robbers revile Jesus. They ridicule. And at least initially, both of them failed to believe that this one beside them, in between them, was the real king the real Messiah. But if you know Scripture and you know the Gospel accounts, you know later on one was led to belief, to repentance and belief. Uh, Luke 23 records it. You can write that down. One of these guys did come. Uh, listen, I'll just read Luke 23, 39 through 43. It says, One of the criminals 
who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, here's this conversation Luke gives us, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And here Jesus replies to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me, we're familiar, in paradise. One of them would believe, one of these robbers would believe, and their life would be changed, paradise. One would remain, as far as we know, in disbelief, destined for eternal separation from God in hell. I think we can ask, is there hope for deathbed conversions? Absolutely. We're seeing it here. Who knows how long till paradise? An hour? Who knows how long it took for that one thief to enjoy paradise? Are you waiting to be close to death to call out to Jesus? Don't wait. Don't put off coming to Jesus in repentance and faith in Him. Today, do that today. Make today the day you come to Jesus. Ask for forgiveness. Have the hope of paradise. Not because of our good works and what we've done, but because of His great work on the cross to save sinners. Well, there's another group that acts out in disbelief. Not just the robbers. It's also those passing by. If you look at verse 29, we hear their account. Those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, or ha, however you put that. You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. These passerbys, they're walking by, they're deriding Jesus. Not like they're saying, gotcha, right? You said you could destroy a temple and rebuild it in three days. You, right? You can't even come down from the cross. How are you going to do all that? They're mocking him. We remember Jesus' words. They come in John chapter 2, verses 19 through 21, where Jesus' words talk about what they're ridiculing over him. This destroying the temple, rebuilding in three days. Here's what Jesus said. He, he answered them because they were they were asking for a sign he said destroy this temple (coughs) excuse me destroy this temple these are jesus words and in three days i will raise it up the jews then said it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you will raise it up in three days but he was speaking about the temple of his body the greater temple jesus in whom is colossians 119 tells us all in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. You think of the temple as a dwelling place of God. In Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And he was enduring this shame and this mocking on an eternally planned mission of redemption. How fitting then that Mark, as we're going to get to, we will get there to verse 38, where indeed in the earthly temple, that curtain top to bottom is torn in two no longer needed it was just a shadow of the believer's true dwelling place 
in God and God in Him. So you see, rather than Jesus not fulfilling His words, He in fact is in the process of their very fulfillment. He is doing it. But these passerbys, they would not believe and they deride one who looks to them to be so weak. You have that word derided him. If you're in an ESV in verse 29, those who pass by derided him. The King James talks about them railing or they railed at him. Or if you have a new American, you might see the words they were hurling abuse at him. The Greek word here is even the word we get the word blaspheme from. That could very well mean the things that the translations have here, but also think of it in terms of blasphemy that's going on. Now, not to them. To them, they have superiority. This is not God up there. Oh, yeah, King of the Jews? No. No, he just said that. It's not who this is. They don't believe he's God. So to them, they're not blaspheming. But we, we look back on this and go, it's blasphemy. They're putting themselves above God. And mocking him. And they know not what they do. They are really blind to the king before them on the cross. Not an unfamiliar theme as we've seen throughout Mark of blindness and seeing. Go with me. I've given you some scriptures. and Head back to Psalm 22. We're, we're continuing to kind of go back and forth between this Psalm 22 as it's laid out in the text and what we're looking at. Last week, we looked at Psalm 22, verses 16 through 18 that talked about and, and um, by way of fulfillment of Scripture, these soldiers dividing the garments of Jesus and casting lots for His clothing. Mark is kind of working backwards in the list, so we've got the, the garments at verse 18, and now we're working back and we're heading to to verses 6 through 8, <coughs> if you look at those in Psalm 22, as we see these uh, passerbys coming by Jesus, wagging their heads, and here's verse 6 through 8 in Psalm 22. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. Here's when they go by, they wag their heads, and here's what they're saying. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. What the last phrase there, for he delights in him. Who's the he? For I think what they're mocking is, for God delights in him. This is one, you know, saying, look at this guy. Does this And so these passerbys at Jesus' time of the cross, basically walking by, look at this, guys. Does this look like somebody God delights in? Oh, marred, beat up and bleeding. Does this look like a delight of God? Well, fact is, Jesus didn't look like one who the Lord delights in. He did look beat up and marred and bloody, and he looked crucified. But we've seen in Mark two places... Um, at the baptism of Jesus, do you remember the voice from heaven? The Father says, you are my beloved Son with you. I'm well pleased. Or then Jesus' transfiguration, and the Father says again, this is my beloved Son. Listen to Him. 
They wag their heads. It looks like God's finished with him. No, God delights in his son. Jesus would fulfill here the eternal covenant of redemption, a plan for the fullness of time, all the way till death on a cross, bearing the wrath of God in order to purchase men back for God to the glory of God. He's on a mission, part of the eternal plan. Back in Mark 15, these passerbys, to them, the one who made such great claims of truth is in the end, in their eyes, he's just another fraud. He's a has-been. He stirred up crowds. Maybe he amazed them in his teaching, but now they see him on a cross and they conclude this one who claimed to be Messiah or the Son of Man, he can't even garnish the power to get down from the cross. What a fraud. What an unsaving Savior this is. Hearts of disbelief. By way of application, just thinking to your own heart, is that ever how you perceive Jesus? A God you thought had something going for Him, but now looking at the situation around you, you face disbelief and doubt because things look so dim, they look unlikely couple examples perhaps you think god is silent therefore he's absent in this situation you conclude we might ask is he or you might think god cannot possibly redeem and work in the mess i have made for myself he can't remember to those passerbys he looks like what kind of savior is this he's marred he's beat up perhaps you think god can't forgive this sin maybe for others not for me Will he not forgive? Maybe you think God's asking me to do this thing, to obey in this way, and if I do, it's going to cost me my job or my livelihood or my family relationship. Will not God be with you? Is he not faithful? Has he not spoken in his word with authority? We too, along with this crowd, I think we're simply prone to look on the things of God at times in disbelief. Saying things like, that's never going to happen, or this will never change, or God is not near, or God's word is not true. And the cross looked like defeat. But in fact, it was the victory of God. What we see with the eyes of our flesh through our finite, our human lens can deceive us and cause us to doubt the plan of God. But then we look to the cross where the Savior, now bloodied and weak, is the surest truth on the darkest day. And we have great hope in Him. It's an area of belief or disbelief. This Savior, the bloodied, weak Savior, do I believe Him? Well, now enters our third group as we look at verse 31. Our third group of disbelief, and it's the Jewish leadership. And it says, So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. I mean, there's just echoes of this. Verse 32, Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. 
the wording here of the mocking of the chief priests and scribe, it's not so much them mocking Jesus to his face, is it? If you read it, they're, they're mocking him, the chief priests and the scribes, to one another. You know, they're, they're talking to one another, isn't it? Yeah, he said he'd save himself. He can't even come down. There's kind of this group together. Perhaps you've heard the terms the mob mentality or the, the herd mentality. Um, thought about this a little bit this week, and Wikipedia has an article on it talking about crowd psychology. Now, Wikipedia, take it for what it's worth, or uh, even psychology. You know, I'm not like a super fan, but listen uh, to what they say about this idea of discussing one another in this mocking of a group, this mob mentality. <clears throat> they talk about <clears throat> crowd psychology, also known as mob psychology, is a branch of social psychology. It's something you can study. You can study mobs, okay? Social psychologists have developed several theories for explaining the ways in which the psychology of a crowd differs from and interacts with that of the individuals within it. They go on to say, crowd behavior is heavily influenced by the loss of responsibility of the individual and the impression of universality of behavior, both of which increase with crowd size. That is, the individual kind of gets lost in the crowd and can do things in the crowd because they don't feel as responsible. They're not out on their own. I mean, if the crowd's going to get arrested, well, they're all with the crowd, you know, or that sort of thing. But also this crowd that leads them, they get this impression that everybody's behaving this way. And this is where the crowd's going. You know, we, we tell people, don't follow the crowd, right? There's reasons for that. It's alluring. And there's pressure exerted by an entire crowd leaning this way or that. So why talk about this? Why get into this? We've seen this crowd at the trial condemn Jesus to death. There's a crowd that has been before Pilate, remember, asking for Barabbas and saying, Jesus, we want you to crucify Jesus. There's the mob of soldiers mocking and beating on Jesus, and now a crowd, at least a group of the Jewish leadership, mocking Jesus amongst one another. And it's a crowd or it's a mob of disbelief. Right? Get down. You come down from the cross, let us see, and then we'll believe. You think they really thought? I don't think so. It was disbelief. And it had a it had a powerful influence on those, I think, part of the crowd. They're together. Again, by way of just application, coming away and just looking at that and asking the question, what kind of crowd are you in? Or are you listening to? Or being influenced by? Whether it's school, whether you're in the stands at a game, or even in church, were people prone to be influenced by the mob? Which is why we need each other as the church. It's why we need to meet together. Not just so individually we can come and we can, we can sing some songs and hear the word individually, but so we can encourage one another in the midst of the crowd of the world. It's already speaking into our lives and giving us influence. We want to encourage one another, not just with our own thoughts and our own psychology, but with the truth of the Word of God to one another. 
the crowd here at the cross, it was a mob of disbelief, a mob of mockery, insult, ridicule. He can't even save himself. We as a church who know the truth of God before us, we're to encourage one another in the truth. Each one of us, we are facing our own trials of belief. Is God who he says he is? Will he forgive? As we talked about some of those. Can I go on? Will he provide? Paul says this of the church in 1 Corinthians 12. He says, if one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. If you allow me the phrase, you are part of a mob, hopefully a good mob, a mob called the body of Christ. Not so we can together, we can huddle and ridicule the world, look at how bad and look out and wag our heads and look like this. No, but that we might go out from here and proclaim the message of the glories of Jesus Christ on the cross, crucified for sinners. And proclaim this to those in darkness that are blind, that God may open eyes and ourselves being strengthened and encouraged by one another, building one another up in the body. I hope you're coming and we're doing that, that we're singing, we're listening to teaching, we're coming to the Word, we're giving tithes and offerings, and you're on the lookout even here in this body. Who can I encourage today? Do I know someone deep enough to know They're struggling with this area of belief in their life. They're struggling to understand God's forgiveness or His role or His authority or something else that we're we're investing in one another. It's just a call again to invest, dear body of Christ, in one another. Those who revile King Jesus, that inscription, King of the Jews, Those who revile him, his kingship, they do so in disbelief. They don't believe his power. They don't believe his being the Christ. They don't believe his words. Question for us, will you believe today when God looks, our finite eyes, looks defeated? Will you trust God when the mob of the world tempts you away? Will you be a critical and essential member of, of the body of Christ, encouraging your brother or sister that is seated amongst us here. At any moment, Jesus had the power to come down, simply wipe out this disrespectful, arrogant lot of Jewish leaders, and amongst others. And yet he stays. He does not come down. I'm going to look at one last passage in closing with you. Head to 1 Peter again a place we've come to before. <clears throat> First Peter, you want to turn there, chapter 2, verse 21, that I think just gives us a picture, and it's fitting as we close to reflect on this servant king upon the cross, facing the ridicule, the blasphemy, the deriding, the hurling insults on. Look at what how 1 Peter 2, 21 speaks about Jesus. I'll read through 23. I won't read the whole section. 21, for to this you have been called, 
because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, we ask, what did he do? When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Jesus entrusted himself to him who will judge justly. Belief. Trust. May we worship today this King Jesus with hearts of glad belief when we're tempted to look on our own weakness. And we see it all the time. We go, I'm weak. And we look, I have a powerful Savior. To have joyful trust when it seems God is defeated and to seek to build up the faith of one another among us. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, for the sake of sinners and the sake of God's infinite glory, you fulfilled the plan for the fullness of time and were nailed to that cross facing the physical pain, facing the pain of those that would ridicule and mock and set themselves above God. When reviled, you did not revile in return. Lord, I pray we'd have the same mindset and the same walk and the same trust of God that on those days when our eyes say, this looks impossible, I look defeated, this situation looks defeated, Lord, whether the situation changes or not, I pray that our rock-solid anchor would be Jesus Christ. We would not mock. We would not go in disbelief. But you would, you, Lord, by your Spirit, would grant us belief in our heart and joy at the name of Jesus. I pray this for each one of us, representing so many different life situations today some out in the field, some in their place of business, some in a school, some traveling, some having coffee. Lord, would you guide each of us to have hearts of belief in the sure foundation of Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.